Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to Matthew 20. Matthew chapter 20. We're continuing our walk through the parables. We have about, I don't know, five or so left in the book of Matthew. We're up to the laborers in the vineyard or the generous vineyard owner. And before we read verses 1 through 16, I invite you to bow your head with me, bow your hearts with me, and let's, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage, and we ask that we would be a people who through it, by the work of your Holy Spirit, understand your generosity better, and no longer begrudge your generosity, no longer cry out that life is unfair, but those who indeed are delighted in the eternal life that you've promised us, no matter how much work we'll have to do between now and then. So grant this for Jesus' sake. Amen. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. <clears throat> and when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour. And you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts, lives this morning. Beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here uh, this morning, I remember as a child uh, acting like and living like, I still do these uh, vineyard workers who were hired first thinking life isn't fair. When I was a kid, I had two pair of pants that I remember per class, per grade, one was a pair that I liked to wear. The other one was sort of dressy and fancy, way too dressy and fancy for school. In fact, I wore it one time, got mercilessly made fun of. <laughs> Never tried to wear the fancy pants again to school. But I remember thinking, why is it, why is it, it's not fair that certain of my classmates have one pair of pants per day. I've got to figure out how to make it work with one pair of pants the whole week. And by the end of the week, you know, you're rubbing like deodorant on the pants. Some of you may know what that's like as guys and Maybe a lot of ladies have done that too, pouring perfume on clothes so you don't smell and reek. Remember thinking it's not fair. Shoes, that was a big one in sports. A lot of guys had the Nike Airs, the Jordans were out, right? And I had some knockoff Reeboks and a sale rack, and everybody knows what the sale rack's like, right? Their shoes nobody else wanted to buy, right? So that's what you get stuck with. Not fair. 
And then we got to high school and it got even worse because, you know, I had a car I had to buy, started off with a car my parents bought for all of us to use, a 63 Chevy Impala. Then I bought my own vehicle for, I don't know, 3,000 bucks or 4,000 bucks. But then some of my classmates came to school with new cars. And the only reason they could afford it is because their parents helped them buy the car, which is good and right, that's fine. But I thought, not fair. How is that fair? Why, like, can't my parents do exactly what those parents are doing? And I'm guessing if you're a kid here today, you probably utter or at least think the phrase, it's not fair to your parents. Maybe you say it, maybe you just think it, but you want to say it on a weekly basis, you would have that. Maybe on a daily basis. And indeed, what you've come to realize is that life isn't fair. What I want us to see, though, this morning in the passage is that more than just life isn't fair, God's grace isn't fair. His generosity isn't fair. And God intends for his people to get that, to understand it. So I want us to see three things from the passage. First is God's generosity displays. He just puts it on display first. The second part of the parable, God's generosity is despised. And then third, God's generosity is explained. And he brings home some powerful truths for us. So first, God's generosity is displayed. Verses 1 through 7. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So the master of the house goes out. The owner travels to town. It's 6 a.m. or probably before then. The Jewish workday started at 6 a.m. That's the first hour. The last hour is 6 p.m., a 12-hour day. So he goes out himself, not sending a manager out, but the owner goes out himself, which says something about the owner. And he hires the first round of workers. Now, if you were hired in the first round, that means you were the cream of the crop. Kids think being picked on the playground for a football or a basketball or a king of the hill game, whatever that may look like. The first people usually picked are the best ones. So you got the best laborers picked first, the strongest ones, the ones who can make a 12 hours, who can go through a lot, they're picked. And he would have traveled to a place where all the laborers would have gathered, right? These are day laborers, not slaves who live with you in your house or another house who are almost part of your family. These are day laborers. Hey, we got a plant, we got a harvest, we need some extra people to come in. So you go to town, time to prune the vines. I go to town, we get 20 people, come on, help me. I need help for temporary labor. Now, astonishingly, the owner gets these, this first group of people and then shows back up, we're told, at the third hour. Well, that's interesting. And at the third hour, there's still people standing there, and so he hires them to go work in the vineyard. You go work in the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will pay you. doesn't even agree on a price. So they went. And then going out again about the sixth hour, now it's noon, and the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., he does the same thing. There's still people standing there. He still hires them. And indeed, they go out to work in his vineyard. And then it comes to the 11th hour, right? This is 5 p.m. We're through the heat of the day. 11 hours have already been worked. We've got one hour left. He goes back into town and he sees people still standing there. And he asks them, why are you still standing there? And they give the obvious answer. No one's picked us. No one's hired us. Maybe we don't look strong enough. Maybe for whatever reason, maybe we have a bad reputation, but nobody has picked us to work. And so he says, you go into the vineyard too. Now, for almost, no one would still be standing there at 5 p.m. 
in almost every circumstance. If it was 5 p.m., you probably would have given up and gone home. There would be very few people standing out there during the heat of the day at 3 p.m. trying to wait for somebody to hire them because it just wouldn't happen. Almost nobody would make it to noon. So what's interesting is that there's people still standing out there, people who are eligible to work, and they are still making themselves available. The owner doesn't tell them what he's going to pay them. He just sends them out there, and they go. And the owner actually looks a little bit crazy in this parable. How does he look a little bit crazy? Because it looks like he can't rightly judge how many workers he needs. Didn't you figure this out the first time? So you you first hired 20 of us. You came back, then you hired another 10, then another 10, let's say, then another 10. We're not told how many, but let's just guess. At the fifth hour, you get five more of us. Couldn't you have just hired 47 people at the beginning of the day and done it all, and we could all have been working all day? So the owner looks a little bit ridiculous, and furthermore, the owner comes out himself. Under normal circumstances, this is something the foreman would have done. The owner wouldn't have done it. But this owner is heavily invested in these people. This owner goes out and hires the people. And by the end of the day, he's just picking over the leftovers. Now, what are we to make of this generosity that's displayed? Many of the people hired were the least expected to be hired. They would have been the bottom feeders, the weakest, the least valuable. And that's just the truth of the way it went. If you had muscles or you looked the part or you had a reputation, you'd have been hired first. If people knew you're a hard worker and you've got the ability, not just the willingness, but the ability to work hard, you'd have been hired first. Who's available the 11th hour? The people that probably couldn't make it. You're not going to get your money's worth, right? Those are the people available. And this vineyard owner grabs them up. That's exactly what God does, beloved, in his system of salvation. There's this passage in 1 Corinthians 1.26 where the Apostle Paul says, I want you Corinthians, you windbags, right? They were a very boastful congregation. And you could argue not for a horrible reason. They were also the most gifted congregation of any congregation in the whole New Testament. And when you're that gifted, you got to deal with pride. And Paul is helping them deal with pride. And he says to sort of deflate them, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. <laughs> you weren't all that bright by worldly standards. You weren't like these eloquent philosophers. Not many were powerful. Oh, and not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And if you look at the church, beloved, if you take a look at the mirror, I mean, just look at all of us here, right? A hodgepodge of very, very ordinary people. The church all over the world, every believer in it, almost always does one thing really well, ordinariness. There are some, right? He doesn't say there's not any rich and powerful. He said not many. The bulk of the Christian church has always been this way, beloved, filled with a bunch of ordinary people. You can pull us out of society, nothing special marked out about most of us. And that's exactly the way this vineyard owner building a workforce for his vineyard, a picture of the church, that's exactly what this vineyard owner is doing, portraying what it looks like uh, for God to build his church. God just has a heart for sinners. He just, you see what the vineyard owner does. He just goes out and looks foolish. Isn't this exactly what God has done? God has gone out and looked foolish 
in order to save sinners. That's the second thing I want us to notice about this. God looks foolish. This owner looks foolish going out to get more people. But he does it anyways. Didn't you get it right the first time? God looks exactly the same way, beloved, in our salvation. How do we know that? Why would God send his son to come down into this world, a needy baby laid in a feeding trough, born into a poor family? Not in Jerusalem, not in Rome. Why would he have his son come down here, hated by his own, looking just like us, except without sin? Why would he have his son go to the cross? That's the biggest question mark, isn't it? Talk about looking foolish. That's why the Greeks could say, this is just foolishness. Like, this is ridiculous. No way would God do this. No way would any God who is the almighty, the sovereign, the prime mover, the first mover, the uncaused cause, no way would any God do this. Not the real God. Yet our God, beloved, has no problem looking foolish in the eyes of the world. He doesn't care. Because his gospel, his way of saving, saves people. And that's what he's concerned about. It calls people into a relationship with him. And that's what our God is concerned about. And then the third thing I want to highlight about this is the owner himself comes to the workers. He doesn't delegate this to someone, but he himself goes out. Again, stands out in the parable. This is unusual activity for an owner of a vineyard. This is exactly what our God does to save us too, isn't it? To pull us out of the heap and bring us into a relationship with him whereby he pays us the denarius of eternal life. And we all get the same payment. God comes personally to us. He doesn't send a check from heaven. He doesn't redeem us with gold or silver, right? Peter makes that clear. But with the precious blood of his son, God himself personally showed up. Second person of the Trinity took on flesh in order to come down and to save us. This is incredible. A landowner doesn't have to deal with laborers. They are as much beneath him as the packaging workers of Amazon are beneath Jeff Bezos' feet. But the landowner, the Lord himself, chooses to deal with the laborers, chooses to walk among them and to be among them. This is a portrait of our God coming down to save, to rescue. Again, in the eyes of the world, looks foolish. Why would you do this work that is, by the standards of the world, beneath you, beneath your dignity? <laughs> because this is our God. He loves to save. And he'll do whatever it takes to save his people. Well, so there's God's generosity displayed. And then secondly, I want us to notice in verses 8 through 10, it's despised. God's generosity is. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. Six o'clock, quitting time rolled around. The owner had the foreman call everyone to come in and get their paychecks. It's time. Those days, it wasn't such a thing as a direct deposit. They all lined up to receive their day's wage, which a lot of them would have eaten, been uh, hand to mouth. They would have needed that money to be able to buy food and support themselves and their family. And it's interesting the order he does. He doesn't pay the people who started first first. He actually starts with the people who went last, who hired last. So the five o'clockers, they show up. They're first in line. The 6 a.m.ers, they're the last in line. And slowly he goes through each one. Now the first ones 
who show up in line, who worked one hour, got one denarius. Now you're in the back of the pack. You're the 6 a.m.er, and you're already doing the math, aren't you? Yep. One denarius for them, that's 12 for us. Sweet. <laughs> this is amazing. One hour, one denarius. 12 hours, doesn't take a genius to figure out. We got 12 coming our way. And then he goes to the nine o'clockers, and they get one denarius. And then he goes to the nooners, right? They worked six hours, and they get one denarius. But if you're still in the last line, you're thinking, well, maybe we'll get two, right? We worked double the amount of time that they worked. And then he gets to the 3 p.m.ers, and then he gets, uh, or no, sorry, backwards, 5 p.m.ers, nooners, 9 a.m.ers, and then he gets all the way back to the people who work six or 12 hours, from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Through the heat of the day, they put up with a ton. He gets all the way to them, and he gives them one denarius. And no one was underpaid, and no one was overpaid. That's sort of the thrust of the parable. Now, for those of us who have a contract relationship with God, like the first people did, this would be hard to understand, hard to swallow. It's not hard to understand, it's hard to deal with, hard to swallow. The, immediately, the immediate application of the parable just pertains to life in the church. And what, how does it pertain to it? This way. But there are people who, like the thief on the cross, they'll live, like, I don't know, three hours. They'll get eternal life. Today, they'll be in paradise with the Lord. Well, they didn't run much. I mean, he's crucified, right? That wasn't fun. <laughs> but it didn't last very long. But then there's other believers who, boy, they come to know the Lord at 10 years old. And they go through a ton of suffering. And their life is filled with suffering. 50, 60, 70 years, beloved. And we probably, I'm guessing there's not one of us here who's a believer has to think very hard and long either about our own life or somebody else's life that we know is just like that. Heat of the day, long day, like, Lord, how, how are you working this out? We know you are. It's for your glory and they're good, but we don't understand this. And then there's some believers who get saved at 10 and their life is just blessed, to use the word we'd probably uh, throw over them, for 70 years. Not much struggle. Not much pain, not a lot of heat and turmoil. Just like the workers in the vineyard, so it goes with our lives in the church. And it's really easy, beloved, to be those who've maybe had a harder Christian life than others. It's really easy to start grumbling. Wait a minute, we work through the heat of the day. How does this work? And we become dissatisfied with our reward. Now, what do Christians grumble about as being unfair of God to do in this life? A few things I wrote down. Wealth. Some of us will say, Lord, how is it fair that I've worked really hard, but somebody else who works less hard than I do, they make, less, they make more money than I do. They're millionaires, and I'm barely paying my bills. God, you owe it to me. That's not fair, right? My life should go different. Why was I the one hired at the beginning of the day, as it were, and have to go through all this difficulty and someone else's uh, eternal life comes to them in the form of ease in comparison to my life? Health, that's another one, right? Health and wealth. Health. Lord, you've made my life filled with sickness, but other believers I know, their life has no sickness. That's not fair. How does that work? Another one, the church praise reward. In the church, beloved, there are believers who are noticed. They're praised for their work. Indeed, their, their work prospers, as it were. They're well-known. They get a good standing. And others work just as hard in the church. 
but their work might be prayer, might be behind the scenes, or they don't get praised, but they just faithfully plod. And so a lot of people will say as they give their lives in service to the Lord, Lord, it's not fair. So-and-so missionary went out and they planted a church and it blossomed and tons of converts. Lord, I've been plowing and plowing up the ministry of Isaiah. <laughs> it seems like the more I speak, the harder people's hearts get. And we can have that same mindset in the church regarding our service. Lord, other people get praised for the work. I get overlooked. That's not fair. Talents and gifts. Lord, why do some people have so many more talents and gifts than I do? Why do some people have 10? I've got one talent. It's not fair. I've actually heard some Christians say that God gives in proportion to our gifting. So since I'm more gifted than others, God has given me more, which is really sick. It's another way of saying that if we have a big ministry or a big influence in this life, it means we must have been given more or be more talented. But that's an earthly measure, isn't it? Some of the most gifted people I know have just teeny, teeny, tiny ministries. But boy, can they serve. Boy, can they teach. But again, God's not called them to some 10,000 person or 5,000 person ministry. Earthly success rewards. God gives in proportion to our work, so I must have worked harder than you because I have more than you. That can be a mindset we just carry through our Christian life, right? And I want to challenge it by saying this. Beloved, just because someone has earthly success doesn't mean that their heavenly reward is going to be better than yours. Just because someone has earthly success doesn't mean we should begrudge them. In fact, we should delight if a Christian is bearing a lot of fruit. That should be our joy. We should celebrate that. One person told me that, I think it might have been Spurgeon actually where I read it. Someone else told it to me. That if we're jealous of other believers, of the race they have to run compared to ours, if we're jealous of the 5 p.m.ers and we've got to go through the heat of the day, we should pray for them. It's hard to be jealous of and hate and be angry at God if we're praying for the person that we're jealous of. Just food for thought. How about learning and degrees? Some of us believe, especially in the Reformed world, that the more educated you are, the more you ought to be listened to. The more you ought to be read. So if you have four or five degrees, all from seminaries or even one or two, therefore, uh, God should bless you, right, with more fruit, with bigger churches, with more readers. And we can fall into that temptation, which is a horrible one. And then those who don't have any degrees, who've never even been to seminary, well, they should have no readers, tiny churches, no influence at all, right? But the kingdom of God doesn't work like that. Spurgeon put earthly success into perspective. We shall not be rewarded even according to our success. To some men, success is meted out in large measure. That success, which really is not their own, but is the fruit of other men's labors. A man preaches the gospel with many tears for years, sees little fruit, he dies. Another man of earnest spirit follows him and gathers in the old man's sheaves. The former man planted, the other man entered into his labors. To whom shall the reward be given? The success, the success is not due to him who seems to have achieved it. You remember the old Romish legend, which contains a great truth. There was a brother who preached very mightily and who had won many souls to Christ. And it was revealed to him one night in a dream that in heaven he would have no reward for all that he had done. He asked to whom the reward would go, and an angel told him that it would go to an old man who used to sit on the pulpit stairs and pray for him. 
Beloved, the point I want to make is this. God doesn't dish out rewards according to how we see. God isn't sitting here punishing those who are not as gifted in this life. If you don't think that God doesn't dish out rewards according to our judgments, then the Christian world is going to be a very confusing place for you. He just doesn't operate that like that. God is not a vending machine like we think. Oh Lord, I've done all this, you've got to give me more. I've worked through the heat of the day, I need more blessing. If that's our view of God, the Christian life is going to be very frustrating, very difficult. Well, verses 11 through 16, God's generosity is explained. First it's displayed, then it's despised, and now it's explained. On receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Notice they're grumbling, right? A huge problem. They despise it. What form does the despising take? Grumbling. To murmur, to speak under one's breath, under low tones. Why is this such a big deal? 1 Corinthians 10.10, we must not put Christ to the test. As some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our our instruction. Grumbling's a big deal, beloved. We might think that the people who worked all day and started grumbling, they've got a good case. And God's saying, (laughs) wrong. Grumbling is a big deal. A heart that continues to cry out to God, it's not fair. How dare you, right? That's a big sin. It's telling God he's not doing a very good job of being God. It's telling our Savior he's not doing a very good job of being our Lord and Master and Savior and seeing us through to the end. God, if I were you, I'd do it different. So we're claiming to be wiser than God. Again, it's not a very good place to be in spiritually if that's where our hearts are. And if your heart's like mine, you find it there way too often. What drove them to begrudge the owner's generosity? They all got the same denarius. That's what drove them. They didn't like it. We all get the same pay. Some of us worked longer. We worked harder. We worked through the heat of the day. And you gave us the same pay. And the language they use, verse 12, you made them equal to us. These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us. In the minds of those hired first, being hired first was really a matter of being superior. You made them just like us. We're the strongest. You hired us first. We're the pick of the litter. We take pride in that. We always get picked first. You made them equal to us. You paid them the same. How does this work? And then they highlighted the pain of having to work through the heat of the day, which is just true of some believers. They have to toil. They have to sweat. They have to go through difficulty that others don't. And then God explains his generosity with three questions. So they bring a good case to him, right? Look, we worked longer. This was burdensome for us to do. We were sweating all day. You know when it gets hot, like what, noon, one o'clock, all the way to like three or four o'clock, especially when you're out in the fields, the heat just radiates off the dirt. We went through that and these five o'clockers, they didn't. How is this fair? And the owner just puts everything to a stop, just holds them right in their tracks. 
by saying, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. That's the first sort of question. Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. First, God addresses the fairness of the reward. At conversion, beloved, the only thing we are guaranteed is eternal life. It's agreed on, as it were. God has yoked himself to that promise. You believe in my son. I hire you. I save you by grace and bring you into my kingdom, into my vineyard. I bring you in. The agreement is that you will have eternal life. That is what God has yoked himself to. God promises, God puts himself on the hook for one thing, the denarius of eternal life. All who are hired to work, all who are saved, all who believe in Jesus will receive this. We all agree to that as it were, right? After God saved us, we believe. It's like, yep, I get it. I have eternal life. That is one thing I can bet on. And so God is saying, what have I done you wrong? What have I done you wrong? How have I wronged you? How is this not fair? I agreed to give you eternal life, a denarius, and I will indeed do that. For the believer who's sitting here today thinking, I didn't sign up for this. It's not fair that my life is harder than so-and-so's life. It's not fair that God is blessing others with health and wealth and praise and fame. Please remember that the agreement, the promise, the generous offer God made to us is the promise of eternal life, and he will make good on that. And that's what God has signed up for. That's what you and I have signed up for. And it's coming. But that doesn't mean that between now and the receiving of eternal life, that some of us won't have to work really hard under really difficult circumstances. And it's going to be a grind to make it. And some of us can attest to that. It's a long, hard grind. And for others of us, it will seem like a really short, blessed trip. All of us have to bear a cross. But sometimes the crosses are harder in the lives of other believers. It's just the way it is. And a parable like this makes that clear. Well, there's a second question, verses 14b to 15. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? The second explanation has to do with God being allowed to do whatever he wants with those he saves. Can I not do that? Can I not do with these people, can I not do with my money? Can I not do with my reward whatever I want to? Can I not give eternal life to somebody whose life has not been hard? Can I not give eternal life to somebody who serves me for only like two months before I take them home and, and also give eternal life to somebody whose life is going to be 70 years of difficulty? Am I not allowed to do it? Of course he is, right? He's allowed to give a Johnny-come-lately Paul the same eternal life that he gives to the disciples, Peter, James, John, and all the rest, who were in the kingdom longer, who had to go through Jesus' earthly ministry, attached to his side, and see all that difficulty. God can do that if he chooses. What a contract Christian, again, cannot get his or her mind around is that God is not in the business of a merit-based system. You know, some people view God as a vending machine. Somebody offered this years ago to me. I thought it was helpful. You put in two quarters, you get a small Snickers bar. I realize inflation's hit. This probably isn't accurate. I've never been to a vending machine like in the past 10 years. But put in three quarters, get a regular size Snickers bar. Put in four quarters, get a jumbo size Snickers bar. Put in eight quarters, the whole shelf empties out of Snickers bars. Some people view God like that. Lord, I put in this much. 
and you need to give me mathematically exactly what is my due. And God says, can't I do with what belongs to me, whatever I want? Yes, he can. Can't I call some people to work harder and to pay them the same as those people who don't work as hard? Yes, God can do that. And then finally, one more question. Do you begrudge my generosity so the last will be first and the first last? Literally, do you begrudge my generosity? Is is your eye evil because I am generous? Are you envious because I'm generous? Are you upset with me? Do you begrudge me because I am a generous God? God's generosity has a way of doing that, beloved. If our hearts are off, when we see God's generosity applied to other people, it has a way of provoking within us a lot of evil, a lot of complaining, a lot of grumbling. And it's something we each have to work through in our own hearts. Well, let me just conclude with this before we come to the Lord's table. The first hires are still day laborers. We must never forget that. Whether we were picked in the first round or picked in the fifth round, we are all just unprofitable servants doing what we're supposed to do. So let none of us get too big for our britches. We might think we're more important than other Christians. We might think that what we're doing is a far greater consequence than other believers, but we're all just unprofitable servants. We're all just doing what we're supposed to be doing And we're all going to get the same reward that we signed up for when God saved us. And let me just bring this home a little more. God could have left all of us on the roadside. The vineyard owner could have come to town and looked at the 6 a.m.ers and the 9 a.m.ers and the nooners and the 3 p.m.ers and the 5 p.m.ers and said, don't need you, don't want you. Just stay on your own. I'm not going to give you a thin dime, no denarius, no eternal life. Could have done it. But here's God's grace, and here's his generosity. He is filling his vineyard. He shows up at 6 a.m. to get a group, at 9 a.m., at noon, at 3 p.m., and at 5 p.m., just filling his vineyard because he wants heaven full. of worshipers of him. He wants a people for himself who will praise him. And that's where he's bringing all of us. And so beloved, for those of us who are hired at 6 a.m. and the the race is getting long, we ought to think, God, thank you for hiring me. Thank you for coming to town and saving me. Thank you for picking me out of the mass of people and for involving me in this great work of building your kingdom. Because I don't deserve to be here. And a denarius, eternal life, I'll work 400 years if you want to let me live 400 years. You want me to live as long as Methuselah lived? I'll do it, right? I'll I'll pull an atom. We'll go 950 years, right? I'll do that and more. Because eternal life, how valuable is that? It's incredibly more valuable than anything in this world. So beloved, it can be helpful to realize that God is not fair in his generosity it's not fair of God to save any of us, actually. It's not fair of God to involve any of us. It's not fair of God to hire any of us. He should have just passed us by, but he has. And so if we're in the game, if we're in this professional Christian game, as it were, right, we're the professional basketball players, we're in. If we've been brought into this team 
if we're involved at all, if we believe, if we're part of God's kingdom, this is the greatest privilege there is in the world. There's no other calling like it. You're in. You've got eternal life coming, beloved. But just keep in mind that your, ro- your race will be different than somebody else's race. Your road might be longer or steeper to climb. You'll have other Christians in your life. You'll look at them and you'll say, yeah, their road's way steeper than mine. Way more difficult. I don't know if I could ever go through that. Beloved, our lives are all over the map as far as what God will call us to walk through before we get to eternal life. But just know that God's generosity isn't fair. Grace isn't fair. God should have left us all behind. And so the fact that you're part of it is wonderful. And that can help reorient us, can't it? So that we say, Lord, I don't care what you call me to go through. I don't care how long the day is going to be. I don't care how difficult my life is going to be. You've promised me eternal life, and I love it. And I'm clinging to that. And that's what I'm looking forward to. And no matter what you ask me to walk through, it will be more than worth it when I arrive there. Let's pray.